difficult to encounter. Now I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing. I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. 师父上人,各位师兄,大家阿弥陀佛, Venerable Master, Dhamma friends, welcome to our Sutra lecture. Uh, Jerry, you need to take that back a bit if you don't mind, a little less loud. I've got a great echo. It sounds very sepulchral. Yeah, good. Uh, even more, take it back further if you can. So I don't sound like the big bopper. Okay, that's good. Ah, much better. Thank you. Okay, welcome. This is September, it's August 25th. We're here in Berkeley, California. And uh, actually, you know what? There's still an echo there. Why is that? That's a new thing. We, we have a brand new sound system. So that's our excuse. And we're still breaking it in, still learning how to make it just right. And... Uh, we're balancing two inputs here with uh, one on cable, one on Wi-Fi, and doing good. All right, that's still still there. Is that reverb? Did somebody slip reverb in there when we were sitting there? That's interesting. Okay. Uh, welcome to our sutra lecture, and here is the sutra text, and you want to turn to the front cover because we're going to uh, recite the name of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and I might mention... There are three, uh, actually four seats in the front tonight that need someone sitting in them because the monks are all away uh, up at CTDB except for Dashing Fasher, who's on duty in the back. So nobody's going to be sitting there. And uh, Tam, why don't you reclaim your usual seat right in the corner? You're, you're the corner. You're our corner guy. You're our wingman. So you need to sit there. And maybe, maybe Jason's got to take. He's got a job. All right. If you would, there we go. All right. When the monks are back, then we'll probably leave those for the Sangha. But tonight, you are honorary Sangha, both of you. You better behave like honorary Sangha. No. So let's recite the name of the sutra from the front cover. A little better? Yeah. Good. It's, it's, it's crisp. Let's say that. Namo Oh, 
please turn in your text to page 66 and 67. We're on line number two. Over to the right at that time, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, wishing to repeat his meaning, used verses saying, all right. Here's what we're going to do tonight. Um, we're going to go through the, uh, the section of text that uh, we have here, and you'll notice that this is the last, uh, the last prose line before we begin verses. And verses in sutras were definitely chanted. They were sung. And we think probably that a lot of the text was sung because this was the time of oral transmission. That is to say, there was the sutras were not written down. The Buddha said, don't write them down. Once you write them down, they become the property of people who can read. Well, how many people could read 2,500 years ago? Very, very few. So the Buddha said, just keep them in memory. Park them on your hard drive. And the hard drives were all carbon-based, hydrocarbon, meaning human memory, not silicon digital memory. So people memorized. They remembered. They used their memory. And one of the very best ways to keep something in mind is to give it meter, give it a heartbeat. That's how you remember it. So a lot of the sutras, like a lot of the knowledge, was kept in memory, kept in memory with, with a melody and meter. So now that we, mind you, this was first translated, this text was first translated in the late 70s, early 80s, and it reflects our knowledge of Chinese and of Dharma at that time. And that's 40 years ago. So we've come, come a long way. Uh, we still have a long way to go in understanding what, what these are all about. Uh, even at the point of language, what does the Chinese actually say? We're still, still discovering that, and it's a long process. So we would translate it differently now. After 40 years of working with these texts and improving our Chinese, we would do it different. And probably it would say, at that time, Bodhisattva Vajra Treasury wanting to say again, the t wanting to explain once again the teachings that he had already delivered, chanted the following verses. We would say that. It's not used verses saying. You don't use verses. You chant verses. You sing them. You say the, the Buddha sang to everybody. Now, did he sing? No, but he probably um, gave it a, a melody. We just did a bunch of those things. We just went... 
Da da will the Sangha with great virtue gong ching da da sang ting da fang guang po huai en jing. We just did that three different times. Did you notice? We, we just chanted three different verses, three different melodic lines, right? Just now, it's setting up the lecture. So we're carrying on that tradition here because this, uh, this is a place where we're trying to keep the old ways alive and trying to integrate them into the culture at the same time. So um, we do it a lot. We do this every week, several times a week. And so uh, we, we adapt by usage. It's like form follows function. So what's the form we use? I'll let you know after we do it a while. We'll do it a lot and then tell you what happens. That's what we're doing. That's the way, it's actually the way it works. So um, there's no great idea that leads our sutra lectures except respect for the text and a wish to know what the Buddha said. After all, what did the Buddha say? Does the Buddha talk to people in Northern California in the year 2012? Well, you tell me. Does he talk to you? If not, we haven't done our job. But it shouldn't be because we didn't try. You know, so that's what we're doing. And so what you see on the page is certainly not the last English version. It's probably the first. It's not the first. It's the second. But I would sure do it different now if I started over. And this is our first. This is our rough draft. This is draft number one. We're going to do it differently. So that being said, let me tell you where we are for folks who are joining us for the first time tonight. And I, I will apologize that in years past, we would, after I said what I just said, I would immediately say to you all, But we don't translate these days. So we used to. We used to follow every, every English passage with a Chinese passage. And we stopped doing that simply not because of uh, disrespect for the Chinese. It's, there wasn't as much demand for people. There weren't as many Chinese speakers who didn't have English. And the English speakers who didn't have Chinese found that a little tedious after, after a long time. And there's a lot to be said for hearing it in two languages. And in fact, the Buddha Dharma is not a teaching that requires uh, speed. We're not speed reading the sutras. Uh, we're going really slowly through the sutras, and it's meant to be heard very deeply. If you get one principle, you're full. Um, you don't need a lot. It's not the case of quantity over quality. But that being said, at the same time, there's a lot, in there's, there's advantage in having full ideas letting an idea grow. And when you break it up every five minutes or 10 minutes, those ideas tend to be, get cut. And so we chose to um, do English only. At the same time, we have always had a Vietnamese translation going, and we're, uh, there has been less of a demand for the Vietnamese translation, but we have Vietnamese translation available should it be necessary. It would be really nice if we had Laotian translation because we have 
many friends here from Laos who are listening very carefully with the English that they know. And when they go home in the car, they ask the English speakers, what did he say? Talk about sincerity. They're willing to sit through the lecture uh, out of respect for the Buddha without understanding it all. So, and bit by bit, we hope Spanish. Wouldn't that be nice if we had a Spanish translation? Wow. And if anybody really wants it, we have Italian. An Italian translation is available, should you want it. Anybody? Raise your hand. Italian? Okay, you're off duty tonight, So, but later. Uh, so, multilingual. The Buddha Dharma translates into many, many languages. Uh, and that's a lot of our job. So, that's to say, uh, I won't be doing the Mandarin translation. So, uh,那么最近呢,需要听中国话的人越来越少,所以我们就不不翻译。啊,遗憾哈,那个,呃,也可以,遗憾呢,听两次,好像那个法更深入,啊,不过呢,那个,一念一念的那个主义哈,要讲
You know, the Bodhisattva is not interested in making money as much. The Bodhisattva is not interested in becoming famous as much. Not interested in getting ahead as much. In fact, if anything, he goes down like water, finds the lowest place because that's what nurtures all beings. So the sutra has uh, shows us what these amazing bodhisattvas do, their motives, what moves them, what their engine is, what thought animates them, and then how they deal with the problems that they encounter. Once they hear somebody suffering, what do they do? That's what the sutra does. It shows us their resourcefulness in healing. So um, our teacher, the Venerable Master Shenhua, said, uh, this text is like a, a handbook of self-help therapy that you can't be without for a single day. It's a how-to for making the pain less. And you can't be without it for a day. You know? So that's interesting. If, if you, like me, are someone who has encountered uh, pain and wanted to know what to do about it, then we're on the Bodhisattva path. That's what the Bodhisattva does. Like, oh man, these people are suffering. What do I do? I need to figure out a way. Okay, so that's the kind of the, the setup. And in almost every case the bodhisattva discovers it's the mind that's gone wrong. It's the thoughts. What's wrong? Look to the mind. Your thinking. The way you see things. They call it your jian. What you know and what you see is the problem. That's the issue. And so the bodhisattva goes to the mind to cure. Um, but thoughts are not... You don't cure it once and it's over. Thoughts usually come in habits. So it's that we groove in our habits into behavior that we repeat over and over. And so curing it once doesn't go to the root. You have to really go deep. So that's, that's what the Bodhisattva is doing. So um, we're in the third ground out of ten. And it's about vigor, energy. Uh, I'm sorry, my mistake. Patience. This is the third out of ten, and it corresponds to what are called the paramitas, the ten perfections. So this one is about patience. The bodhisattva goes into situations that most people couldn't be patient with, and he or she is very patient and waits it out and gets through. The other thing to notice is that this is gender neutral. At no time... In the sutra, does the bodhisattva show himself as a man or as a woman? It's not specific because the mind is the issue and the bodies come and go. You could say, if you really wanted to get down to it, the bodhisattva doesn't necessarily show himself as human. It's not only gender nonspecific, it's species nonspecific. Because the bodhisattva path is practiced by gods by ghosts, by asuras, by humans of all descriptions, and by bodhisattvas. So how interesting is that? This, this text is not even species-specific. It is not human-centric. 
humans, our human mind, uh, the human body allows us to practice in all kinds of ways. But this is not a, a human, human-centric, anthro, anthropocentric, anthrocentric text. It's bigger than that, which I like a lot. Okay, let's go into that first four-line stanza and give it a tune. I'll, I'll chant the first line, and you try to chant it back, see, what, see how it works. Here we go. Qing Jing Anju Ming Sheng Xing. Here you go. Qing Jing Anju Ming Sheng Xing. Yan Li Wu Tan Wu Hai Xing. Yan Li Wu Tan Wu Hai Xing. Jian Gu Yong Meng Guang Da Xing. Wow, that sounds good. When that comes back this way, that sounds really good. Okay, uh, we're not going to do the English because um, English is not there yet. Uh, next next week, I I um, I confess uh, I made some switches at the very last minute tonight. I was going to put this the first four verses on the screen. You notice I had my computer over there. I was going to bring the screen down and turn this turn tonight into a translation assembly and um, massage this text because it needs it needs to be put it needs to be translated again. Um, I decided not to do it at the very last minute because um, there are other things that I want to do tonight as well. And um, the, the time is now for those things to happen. So um, that was my choice. And we'll, we'll live with the English we have for now, but I want to point out places that can be improved, okay? So um, I'll give you the English and in spoken, and you give it back. Minds which are pure, Minds which are pure. Secured, and in secured and flourishing in brightness, of discussed non-greed and non-harming minds, of non-harming minds. Solid, valiant minds. solid, valiant minds, minds which are both vast and great, the wise one uses such as these to enter the third ground. All right. Qing Jing Anju Ming Sheng Xin. You'll notice that all three of the first three, the first three Chinese verses, all end with the word Xin. You all see that one. Xin, it's a picture of a heart. Actually, it's one of the characters that was a, a pictogram. It's a picture of the heart muscle inside your chest with the, the veins, the arteries and the veins visible. Four chambers with the aorta and the vena cava going out. That's the word xin. And it's a picture of that actual heart organ, but that's not, it's not talking about that organ, the body. 
It's talking about the place where thoughts happen. Um, so when the Chinese say, think it over, they don't go here. I've thought about it. They go, I've thought about it. Xin is where you think. So the heart instead of the brain is the, the seat of thought, which is interesting in itself. Um, and these first four lines are just a list of xin. What is it? Three, qingjing, pure. Anzhu, secure. Safe. Mingsheng, bright. Flowing with light. Sheng means like that, abundant. But the steam that comes out of your pasta when you pour it, put it under the, under the cold water, which I am informed by my pasta expert is the wrong way to do it. <laughs> Correct? Correct? You don't douse the hot pasta with cold water. Bad idea. So, but that, the steam that comes off it when you do that, that's, uh, that's mingsheng. But it's light. It's, mm, what do we say, effulgent light, radiant light, blazing light. That's what this means. Xin. So, a xin, and I'm going to leave it untranslated for a minute. A xin that is pure, that is secure, that is shining with light. Like the sun. If you've seen those spectrographs of the sun, you can't really look at the sun, but the telescopes occasionally do. And you see this, these eruptions of light coming off the sun. Interesting factoid. Aren't you glad you came to the lecture tonight? The sun is the most perfect, perfectly round object in space. There you go. I know you'll thank me later. That's all right. You don't have to pay extra for that fact. I picked that up yesterday on boingboing.net. The sun is the roundest thing. Right? I mean, you, you didn't know that, did you? I didn't either. The sun is the roundest thing in space. How about that? Perfectly round. By, I mean, you know, geometrically, solar metrically. So, this is that. It's those full of light. How does your heart work? Is your heart full of light? Bodhisattva's hearts are. Our sutra says so. So, what is the shin? We're saying mindset. Mindset. That's what we came up with. Because it's not just thoughts. It's not just attitudes. It's not just uh, perspectives. It's not just uh, concepts. None of those words capture what shin has, except mindset. It's deep. It's a whole way. It's kind of like a gestalt. It's a whole way of looking. So, pure, secure, and radiant with light. Yan Li, Wu Tan, Wu Hai. Now, here are three things that have negatives in them. Yan Li. Yan means to dislike. Li means to go away from. So, a mindset that dislikes and goes away from something. What do we... What do we say? They, the translation was disgust. That's disgusting. He left in disgust. Right? He uh, received 
the, the waiter put the plate on the table and the diner took a look and left in disgust because it was three days old. You served him something that had mold on it. You disgusted, you left. That doesn't really sound right. A disgust mind, a disgust mindset, a mindset of disgust. What's it talking about? It's talking about somebody who has taken a look at the things of the world and decided that they no longer attract him, her. How do I know that's true? Because that's what the, the chapter said earlier. Now, these verses are repeating dharma that was taught in prose lines first. So, if you... How did it go originally? All right. Page 43. Sushusanye. Page 43 is where the Bodhisattva, this, the third ground has just begun, just started here. Here's our Bodhisattva, and take a look at who this person is. The Bodhisattva looks at the things of the world, and he, because he's now, this Bodhisattva has got a lot of wisdom. He's on the third stage out of ten already. He, she, looks at the things of the world and goes, whoa, you know what? Things are impermanent, suffering, bad translation, unsatisfying, better translation. Things don't last, they don't satisfy, they're not pure, meaning they're, they're not essentially one thing, they're all mixed up. They don't have any peace, they're always breaking. They fall apart, subject to destruction. They don't last a long time. They come and go in an instant. They don't come from the past. They don't stop in the present, and they don't head towards the future. So who, who can see this? Somebody who looks deep is the answer. The Bodhisattva looks at the things of the world and goes, you know what? Man, I have never had one thing that really lasted. Things come and go so fast. Joni Mitchell, right? Everything comes and goes, brought about by lovers and styles of clothes, right? Uh, just when you think that you finally got it made, bad news comes knocking at your garden gate. Joni Mitchell was speaking the Dharma of impermanence. Okay, there you go. Well, you find your dharmas where you can. Yeah. When somebody's talking true principle, we'll take it. So, Joni Mitchell is very eloquent, talking about how things don't last. Everything comes and goes. The Bodhisattva looks right through the surface, the shiny, glittery shrink wrap, and goes, that's not going to satisfy. And what would be the, you know, we're looking for ways to bring the Buddha's wisdom forward into the 21st century. And the, um, the first word, he says, is impermanent. Wuchang. They don't last. What do we say? We say, doesn't hit the spot. That didn't hit the spot. I bought it. I wanted it. I got it. It didn't hit the spot. 
It didn't scratch the itch. I still have longing. The craving did not go away after I got the thing I thought was it. Why? Everybody told me this was it. All the reviews on Amazon.com said this is it. Right? All of the discussion boards, all the experts said this is the one. And it wasn't. I got it and it, like, I still had that emptiness. Right? That's what we really say. All that is wrapped up in Wu Chang, Ku Kong. It's unsatisfying. The Buddha said, the Bodhisattva here is looking past the surface of the world and goes, you know what? I've never found anything that isn't that way. It's not that some things satisfy more than others. It's like, actually, it doesn't last long. Now, how can the Bodhisattva say that? Is it like a feeling? Is this Bodhisattva get up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? He's like got in a bad mood. Bodhisattva is in a constant bad mood because nothing satisfies. No, it's not that. It's that the Bodhisattva is looking not only out at the things of the world, at the same time he's looking in at the thing that's looking at the world, i.e. himself or the self. And he notices some things about that, which is the thoughts that he is experiencing or she is experiencing themselves rise and fall. Rise and fall. Rise and fall. So when the thoughts in the mind that is looking at the stuff of the world rise and fall, where do you find anything that lasts? When the self that's doing the looking is a temporary accumulation of conditions. You could call it a component world. So not only the externals, but the very organs of perception themselves are made of other stuff that doesn't stick together for long. Such as your body doesn't last. How much the more the eyes that are watching, how much the more the thoughts that are evaluating what the eyes see. Wow, that's really beautiful, man. Well, and then it gets a scratch or it breaks or it gets dented and it's not beautiful anymore. You go, well, that's funny. It didn't last. you know. And you apply that to the whole world and you go, yeah. You know, the more I look, the older I get, the more I see that the stuff of the world comes and goes. Everything comes and goes, says Joni Mitchell, the Dharma of impermanence. Right? The Bodhisattva is seeing that now and going, what lasts? What finally hits the spot? And it's hard to find anything. If money hit the spot, how come people wouldn't be content with the first million or even the second million? But they're not, it seems. I don't know. I haven't had a million to save. But it's like, it seems like it's never enough. It's never enough. Isn't isn't it funny that that the you know we're not going to go into economics, but the one percent that owns forty percent of the available wealth 
you would think at some point would go, actually, I have all I need, but I notice there are people there who, like, don't have anything, and maybe I could, since I'll never, ever be able to spend all that I have, maybe some of that could go back into the flow to help. That doesn't seem to be the thing. Why? Because there is something at work in the mind called greed. And the Bodhisattva has wutan, no greed. Right? A wutanshin, a mind that has no further greed. The greed in the Bodhisattva's mind has actually been worked on. That's what the Bodhisattva's been working on. Furthermore, he's got a mind of wuhai, harmlessness. The Bodhisattva really lives ahimsa. What a great word. A-H-I-M-S-A, ahimsa. In Sanskrit, anytime there's an ah, that usually means not or no. And the Chinese is wu, right? No harm. Hai here is to harm. So wuhai, a wuhai shin is a mind that has no longer interested in bringing harm. Can't casually afflict people and go, hey, sucker, loser, you deserved it. Can't do that anymore. Not because he's a special, like, uh, a new kind, like an alien new race or something. It's that the Bodhisattva has been specifically transforming every thought of harm that used to come up a lot. Every time it comes up, the Bodhisattva deals with it. What I'm saying is, not born this way, but cultivated this way. The Bodhisattva used to have lots of desire, greed, and harming in his mind because he was a person. He was a normal person. But on the third stage, the third ground, these three particular minds, thoughts, mindsets, have been transformed. So this is hard-earned. This is a reward now to have a mind that is, has, he looks at the nature of stuff and goes, not any longer. I used to want to get hooked by that, but I don't anymore. I used to want to have more and more and more of that, but I realized that that poisoned my mind to never be content. Furthermore, I used to enjoy inflicting pain. Not anymore. Um, I, did a, I did a period in my life where I um, didn't talk. And uh, I was by myself. I mean, I had a companion, but I didn't talk. And so my, I didn't communicate. And as a result, all my thoughts had a returning loop. They didn't go out to connect. And so as a result, uh, after about a year of that, um, my sense organs changed so that um, I wasn't listening for feedback on my own ideas. And just by that simple change, that allowed my own contents of my mind to rise up more. And I was tuned into my thoughts as never before because I wasn't giving and taking with, with ideas outside. I reviewed my own tapes from my own tape library and I was amazed at what came up from below 
Um, I used to burn ants with gasoline. I used to pour gasoline on anthills and set them on fire. And if somebody had told me that I did that, I would have said, no way. Who could be so cruel? I used to have a magnifying glass and I would like focus the magnifier on the ants and burn them. Anybody else do that? You don't have to admit it. (laughs) But you're not alone. All of you magnifier burners, you know, ant murderers. Yeah, I can see the faces. Hi, my name is Hung Shur, and I burned ants with magnifying glasses. Uh, We have lots of empty seats. Please come forward. Do not sit in the back. Lots of empty seats. Looks funny to have folks in the aisles when there are so many empty seats. I'm going to move you into the front row, believe it or not. Yeah, good, good. And then other folks, you got it. Good. All the veterans have to put up with the monk tonight. You got to sit up front. So, believe it or not, I used to do that. And, like, what in the world? That's called a mind of harm, a mindset that enjoy it. Like, did anybody, like, who isn't clear that that's wrong? You know, watching ants shrivel up and die and burn? Blah, I did that. And I completely repressed that thought. I, like, totally did not want to remember that. And so I'm bowing, and I'm bowing... And I look, and there's an anthill. And I'm watching these ants do their thing. On the, and let me tell you, as a footnote, all these random facts you didn't know if you hadn't, wouldn't know if you didn't come tonight. There were over, we counted 60 different varieties of ants under our noses. And I'm sure there were probably 10 times that many, but we noticed 60. The big black ones, the red and black ones, the brown ones, the red ones, the... The yellow and white ones, you know, all big little. And uh, I watch. And, of course, I'm not supposed to be noticing when I'm bowing. I'm supposed to be mindful. But I bow. And here's this anthill, like, inches from my nose. And I would look. And I'd stand on the way from, from here to here, standing up. I suddenly was back in my nine-year-old self with a match in my hand watching the ants burn. And it hit me like a tree trunk, tree stump, tree falling on my head that I had cruelly burned those ants before. And, you know, you go, ants, big deal. Ask the ants, (laughs) big deal. You know, somebody burning ants just because I wanted to. And because I couldn't talk and I, I wasn't communicating, I had to figure that one out myself. I was alone to figure out why did I do that? And my only answer is, man, people can be cruel. People can be cruel. I didn't, I wasn't doing it to show off for my boyfriends or to get, I was doing it because I wanted to watch the ants burn. And then the the magnifying glass is worse, you know. So, because it's slower. Anyway, I had to face the fact that I could do that. And the only answer is, people have cruelty in their minds. Like me. You know, it's like, whoa, how could I do that? And uh, that, in it, that was uh, years ago, because I'm pretty old now. And then I, as I was bowing, um, 
I had to reflect upon presidents who start wars voluntarily. And that took it to another degree of magnitude. And it convinced me, number one, that I didn't want to burn ants anymore. I didn't want to uh, have those thoughts of harm. And furthermore, it convinced me to, uh, to not take part in military endeavors. And I come from a long line of warriors. My father is a, was a, a multiply decorated war hero. My brother worked in the Pentagon underneath Colin Powell's office and uh, worked in NATO. And I come from a long line of warriors. And I'm convinced that I don't want to harm. If you harm for, to defend the country, that's righteous. Uh, if you are uh, employed as a soldier and do your duty, uh, every country needs a strong military. Unfortunately, that's, that's the way. Um, in the land of utmost bliss of Amitabha, there probably are no warriors. But um, our teacher, Master Shrenhua, really surprised me when uh, he... Uh, talked about the necessity of a strong, skillful military. I, I didn't expect to hear our teacher praise uh, military strategy and strong generals until he just told us early on that in past lives he had been a fierce military general many lifetimes. So, you know, we were, I was kind of coasting on this notion of uh, love is all you need, you know. Love is all you need. And he said, naive, ignorant child. He said, <laughs> love is all you need. He said, well, you're, you'll be in prison. Uh, imprisoned by the dictators that march in and take over your country. Because love is not all you need. He says, you also have, because why? Living beings have hai xin. We sentient creatures are not all flower children, the age of Aquarius, singing beetle songs, you know, or kumbaya, not. Uh, so I had to look at this again. How do you deal with that? Personally, I really disliked my image of myself as being somebody who massacred ants with fire defenseless ants who are working to live their lives hard. Ants are amazing. But then again, you, and I didn't want to be part of, I wanted to purge my mind of thoughts of harm. And at the same time, it's not the case that you can't, you can do without the military. So somewhere we balance that. And the occupation of a soldier is a noble necessary occupation. Um, I know that in my family, I'm the monk. <laughs> my brother and my father are the soldier and good at it. So where does that leave us? Where do, where do you find the middle way in the midst of this? One is you say, wow, living beings, sentient creatures are complicated, aren't we? How, how do you make your decision? How do you live your life? That's one question. 
And a second question, second principle would be people can change. People can change. So here's our bodhisattva. What is our bodhisattva doing? He, she, has a mindset that looks upon conditioned things with no attraction. The bodhisattva is not confused by the surface. He looks through to the heart of all stuff, all things he sees, she sees, and goes, you know, this is going to come apart. That's the nature of such things. People who celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary at some point let go of their hands, let go of their spouse's hands. And that's the nature of it. So that's, the Bodhisattva sees that. And to say yin, li, means the Bodhisattva is not confused into thinking that finally this is the one. You and me forever and forever, baby. It's like, okay, that's good to hear and say, but understand that that's not true. Fundamentally, that's not true. And so what does that mean? You don't get related? You, you look around and disgust? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you understand the nature of all things made of conditions, which is they don't last. And you find balance in the middle of that. Two, the bodhisattva says, I know when I've had, when I have enough. And when more comes, I give. I know when I've had enough, and I give when more comes. That's wutan, no greed. Perfect example, look at Bill Gates. And I never would have thought I'd be saying this. Um, Because sitting right here in this seat in years past, and mind you, we've been doing this for a long time, I have used Bill Gates as a symbol of unmitigated greed. Uh, not so much Bill Gates, but Microsoft and other software companies that tell us when it's time to give them some more money because we need the upgrade. Adobe decides, oh, Creative Suite number five was not good. We have Creative Suite number six for you. We've added some features. We've made it faster. We've optimized this component. And it's time for you to give us the upgrade, which we determine is $270, thank you very much, Creative Suite 6. And we will cripple some aspects of Creative Suite 5 that, you know, you go, gee whiz, didn't I just do that for Creative Suite 5 from 4, right? Well, I had Creative Suite 2, and when I upgraded to OS, the one Snow Leopard, I couldn't use it anymore. So I had to either dump it or upgrade. And so it like this, you know, that's called greed, because those features, those up, those improvements, not such a big leap. But the company, to keep their employees in their health benefits, have to put their hand in your pocket again. That's a funny world. $279 can buy people in the world food for a year. And yet I'm upgrading from five to six. You go, no, wait, where does that end? All right, Bill Gates. So I'm used to radically attack the pricing policies of software companies. And Bill Gates, at some point, stepped off that bandwagon and said, enough, 
I'm going to do something meaningful with my wife, Melinda, such as eradicating malaria. Let's do that. What do you say? What do you say we eradicate malaria? <laughs> All right. What are you doing? Well, I thought I'd go to the library, you know, watch some reruns. Well, let's go eradicate malaria instead. Okay. Sure. Why not? I'm not busy. So they're doing it. They're going and they eradicate smallpox. It's gone, right? And this is Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda. They're attacking AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. Furthermore, they're going around the world finding the rich people and saying, you know what? You had enough. Why don't you give? Challenging other rich people to become donors, to become benefactors, to become generous people. And that's noble. That's Mutan, right? What a courageous act that is. So we've, we've stopped bashing Bill Gates as being a symbol of greed and turn around and say, wow, Bill Gates, not bad, Bill and Melinda. You know, Jayo, please continue. Do that. So anyway, that's no greed. And then no harm. The Bodhisattva says, yeah, if I can with my hands never again cause harm, but instead use my scalpel to cure illness, I will do that. Doctors do that. Doctors take this vow, the Hippocratic Oath. They say, I will use my skills to help. Here's my scalpel. I can kill you and I can save you with that same blade. I'm going to choose the save. Right? You go, noble. That's the Bodhisattva's decision. So, not so simple. And it's not just, I love everybody, kumbaya, peace and love. That's good. Who is opposed to peace and love? But saying it doesn't bring it. And sometimes if you only say it and don't act, you're going to get the opposite. Because business as usual. The haishin, even in people like myself who burn ants, you don't expect it, you don't want it, and it's right there. And you do it anyway. So the, that experience of bowing showed me, uh, surprised me with the reality of what I was capable of doing, the amount of harm I was able to cause. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So anyway, the Bodhisattva has been working on these things, Right? Confusion over the surface, greed and, and harm. Now, he doesn't have this. He has cleared it away. Solid. Solid minds. A solid mind, we never think of a mind as solid. That's really strange. What we might think of as enduring or durable or um, stable. That's the word. We talk about somebody that's very unstable mood. Stable, stable mind, meaning not shakable. Stable, yongmeng, courageous, somebody who is not frightened, who doesn't frighten easily. Yongmeng, guangda, expansive. So the Bodhisattva's got an, a state, a mindset that doesn't shake, that isn't afraid, and that is really big expansive. That's the Bodhisattva's mindset. Further, the last line says, wise ones such as these, these wise Bodhisattvas, they, the verb here is ru, and ru means to enter. 
to go in. You rule, man. You go into a door. You walk through the door. But here, sometimes rule can mean master. He masters the, the, the third ground. But I think because it's the first stanza, it really means uh, goes in. Takes, takes the first steps into the third ground. And this is interesting. How many do we have? We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. There are nine shin here. And each of these grounds begins with a description of mindsets that lead to this next level this next level of accomplishment called the third ground. They're kind of... Uh, they're, you know, what do you do? Um, find an equivalent. What, what is... You, well, we just saw Olympic athletes, right? The athletes in the Olympics. And their, their trainers, their coaches, put them in the right... Uh, put them in the right frame of mind to compete at that level with that pressure, to cope with the pressure. We watched the uh, women's gymnastic team, the Fierce Five, uh, those young girls, uh, get ready to go out and compete in the bright spotlight of the world stage because that is no problem. That's an amazing uh, pressure cooker when you're, you know... uh, on that bar and the balance beam and on the uneven bars and the parallel bars and the floor competition, uh, intense pressure. And clearly, success or near success, right, the difference between the gold and the, the silver and the bronze is often the mind. You have to be in a state of real stillness. And fencing, you watch the fencing and you watch the... Uh, the other uh, sports that require not just strength and endurance, but an incredible state. Apparently, weightlifting is that way. Uh, the Chinese wiped up in weightlifting this year. They just took the medals. And to, to lift that over your head, to get that bar up and not, you know, not go down, uh, requires mind over matter, clearly. It's a mindset. So... Likewise, the bodhisattva has to prepare his or her mind to accomplish these stages, to get to these stages, the third ground, the third stage. So, um, what I would like to do at this point is um, move on to the second part of what I wanted to share tonight. And talk about what's going to happen tomorrow at CTTB and why there's this table in the middle of the Buddha Hall with Ziploc sandwich bags and mixed nuts and uh, lots of razors. <laughs> the razors came by UPS, interestingly enough. We open up this, why well, UPS drops off this box, we open it up, it's full of disposable razors for Ulambana. Whoa. Great. Um, and some razors that came from the 20th century today. Uh, a story in itself. So what are these doing here? 
We are at that time of the year called Ulambana, Sanskrit word, which means saving those that are hanging upside down. And it's a story. It's a great story. It's a moving story that has been told for 2,500 years and has permeated the cultures of Asia and been retold as an opera, as movies, as anime, manga, uh, fiction, celebrations, sutras, all these different forms of the story of Madhgalyayana saves his mother. One filial son who knew that his mother had fallen from her human body into another realm, in this case, the realm of the ghosts, where she was in hell, and he, he woke up. He got enlightened. He realized wisdom and opened his eyes and saw, in fact, his mom was in hell as a ghost. And he freaked out and needed to find a way to save her. So he went to the Buddha, and the Buddha gave him away. The Buddha told him how. He did it and saved his mother from not completely, but lots of the suffering. And then Madhgayayana, being the person that he was, said to the Buddha, well, that was great. It worked really well for my mom. Will it work for other people's moms? And the Buddha said, I'm so glad you asked. Yes, it will. So here's what I want you to do. On the full month, the full moon of the seventh lunar month every year, which, by the way, is this Friday coming up, he said, I want you to gather all the monks and nuns together and we will have all the lay people make offerings to them, abundant offerings of the four things that, that monks use, clothes, and drink, uh, clothes, food and drink, Bedding, meaning sleeping bags, shelters, tents, Prius hatchbacks, <laughs> things you need, and medicine for their illnesses. And make those offerings to them. The Sangha will in turn chant sutras and mantras and transfer the merit for all those beings who are suffering from their own offenses. And this is, this is called the Day of the Buddha's Rejoicing, So that's coming up this Friday. So every year, Ulambana has been celebrated. And these, this, these tables will be up for a week. And next Saturday, they'll, they'll be here and we'll take them down Sunday. And I'm going to explain more about the sutra um, next Saturday night and next Saturday morning at 9 o'clock if you would like to come and chant with us we're going to take the Ulambana Sutra and chant it we'll do it three times twice in English once in Chinese and the mantra that goes along with it Mili Do Do Po Yesoha you recite that mantra so um, it'll be next Saturday just one day after Ulambana the actual day of Ulambana now that, ser- that story Madhgayana saves his mother, um, touched people's hearts long ago, 
and has continued to do that to the point where in Japan, anybody who's lived in, with Japan, in Japan, Japanese culture, knows about Ubon Matsuri, Ubon. Ubon is a, is a holiday in Japan. It's huge. The whole country stops for Ubon. Matsuri means uh, holiday, celebration. And Ubon has its own customs and costumes and foods and dances and songs and things you do. And it's Ubon is Wulumbana in Japanese. So um, that story moves people. Madhagayana went looking for his mother to find out what had happened to her because he cared about her and he had a hunch that she was in trouble. Sure enough, she was because she had not lived a good life. And he, as I say, broke down, but he didn't just wail and grieve. He went to find the Buddha. He said, Buddha, what can I do? And the Buddha said, here's what you can do and make offerings to the Sangha, have them do the dharmas that they do, transfer the merit, things will improve. Well, they did, and things did. He followed instructions, and things got better. So, that's the, uh, there's a lot of lessons, and we'll talk about that next Saturday. It's that particular story is full of good lessons, uh, principles. And it's a really short sutra that's chanted this time every year, just that one day. And we'll do it next Saturday at 9 a.m. So if you want to come join, please come at 8.45. Get ready, because we're going to start at 9. And we'll be here, and we'll do it twice in English and once in, in Chinese. Uh, if we can find a Vietnamese copy, we'll have it available for folks who want to follow along in Vietnamese. So it's, uh, that's Ulambana, and that's what these, these uh, things are doing here in the center of the Buddha Hall. All right, that's one. Two is um, this Tuesday we will be at Tiant's Tea Shop on 4th Street here in town, 7.30 p.m. for Tea and Dharma. This is coming right up. This is our, in, our monthly Tea and Dharma session, 7.30 at Tiant's Tea Shop. It's, if you go on 4th Street, and go north, you'll first block, you run into Pete's, Pete's Coffee, turn left, go down two shops, and there is Tiance. Um, Tiance has been part of our community for years, back when it was Celadon on Solano, moved over to Fourth Street. And um, we, Tiance is kind enough to open their doors to us, and we go up in, upstairs in the loft and listen to uh, each other talk about what's going on. And we also drink wonderful tea. So this week, uh, this Tuesday, we're going to be talking about, um, here's, you have to listen here. This idea is not quite fully formed, but we're leaving summer, heading to fall. The seasons are doing that, although we don't see them as dramatically here in the Bay Area. In fact, the seasons are turning. Summer is going to fall. Summer ends, fall begins. And uh, because this is a, a university town, autumn always means back to school. Um, some of us are going back to work. or And everything ramps up. Everything kind of gears up. 
things go into overdrive. And uh, so there's an internal change as well as an external change. And what I thought we would talk about is strategies for, for gearing up. What, what do we gain when we leave the lazy, hazy days of summer? And what do we lose? So the, que- the bigger question is, what is work, what is play? If summer is a time of play and relaxation and rec- recreation, you recreate, you create again. If that's recreation, recreation in the summer, why do we leave that in order to, like, have no fun? Why do we leave fun to have no fun and take it as what we're supposed to do? And some people will say, well, I don't know about you, Dharma Master, but I like to work. I like to ramp up and study and learn and, you know. Fun doesn't only mean doing nothing. So, right, I agree. That's our conversation. What, what's the difference between kicking back and enjoying the lazy days of summer versus the busyness that we get going in the autumn so we can move forward and get something done and graduate or um, work towards our degrees and things like that. So that's kind of the idea. And so it's, it's called uh, gearing up for autumn, back to school, back to work. What do we gain? What do we lose? That's kind of the idea. And we need a little bit more shape to it before it's in full form. But that's Yadola, is that okay? Is that topic all right? Just, and changing teas, we can also say that. There's summer tea, spring teas, and there's autumn teas. So uh, even the tea recognizes there's a change in the season. So anyway, that's kind of the idea. And we will have songs and puppets there to talk, help us understand the principle. The shamis. The shamis. Possibly. We'll, uh, I'll see if I can talk them into it. How about you? Which season do you prefer? Ah, oh, I'm a summer lion for sure. Really? Yeah. What do you mean? I like lazy. Lazy? You're just resting, right? Well, yeah, I rest. Yeah. For what? For dynamic action. <laughs> it provoked me and I jump and all, but then I, then I rest. Okay, good, good. We'll hear more from you later. All right, good. Notice, yeah, you do that very well. Okay, so that's the topic on uh, Tuesday, Tuesday night, 7.30. And if we can do this, we'll dedicate the merit now and then move into the third part of the program. Dedication of merit is here on the back of your sutra, uh, your songbook. You'll find that you have a songbook in front of you. Please... Turn to the back. If you have don't have a songbook, but you've got the, um, the the sutra chanting sheet there, that will also have dedication of merit for you. Now, the way dedication of merit works is you make a wish. 
you, you find that place inside that um, where your thoughts arise. That's the place where you make your transference wish. And that's the same place where all of us uh, experience our thoughts rising. And if you put a wish there to see through the surface, transform greed and, and harming, then you can dedicate the merit from the same place. That's where the merit comes from. That's where the transference of the merit comes from. So we do it together. If you'd like to put your palms together, if you'd like to, and make a wish. Where would you send all that merit? I'll meet your, meet your mind in that place and share it, all right? You all turn to page um, 76.
talking about no harm, some people would say there are anthropologists and mm, social scientists and people who say that um, we are meant to, we're, we're programmed to kill, that we, we are red of fang and cruel of fang and red of claw, that we have blood in our claws. That's just the way we are. And it's what? Instinct. And, you, you know, that's a pretty standard analysis, law of the jungle. We're mammals and that's what we're meant to do. Doggy dog, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's just the way it's done. In nature, people say. Well, there is evidence to support that. However, that's not the whole story, at least in nature. Humans seem to be the cruelest, nastiest, bloodthirstiest species on the planet because we kill everything and eat almost everything. Whereas nature, the animal world, where we say, hey, you're worse than an animal. Well, we are worse than animals. I have seen animals behave in a way that I wish humans would emulate. This song came from one of those things, one of those moments. If you drive on Highway 1 down past a place called Gaviota Pass, which is north of Santa Barbara, the end of Big Sur. It's the beginning of Big Sur if you're going north. There's uh, a lot of sun-blasted hot landscape there. Very few trees. And while I was uh, on that pilgrimage I mentioned earlier, going through this area, we went very slowly and you could see you could see what was going on on both sides. And we were at the end of seven years of drought. Remember, that was one of those long droughts that we experienced in California. And everything was burned, burned. There was one very large tree, a huge tree. And if you drive through Gaviota Pass heading south, you'll see that tree on the left. And we saw that tree from a mile away, bowed slowly up to it, and then bowed past it. And as we were bowing past it, we noticed, especially in the heat of the hot summer, we noticed that in the shade of that tree, which was substantial, because it's a big, big tree, it's been there for hundreds of years, there were animals in the shade. They were smarter than the monks. I mean, everybody should have gotten out of the summer sun except for the monks, mad monks and English men, right? So there we were bowing, and everybody who had a lick of sense was in the shade under the tree. But who was there? That was the news. Under the tree were coyotes on one side and rabbits on the other. Now, somebody would say, oh, natural enemies, right? Well, except in the heat of the sun, in the summer above Santa Barbara, they both found shade in the tree, 
respectfully watching each other from a distance. <laughs> like that, you know, and the rabbits were crouched down going, <laughs> little red tongues, <laughs> and the coyotes on the other side are going, <laughs> their tongues hanging out. And they found a space where they could both coexist under the tree until sunset. And as the sun set, they both kind of backed away, and the rabbits a little faster than the coyotes, and they backed away and ran away because they hunt at night. And then we saw what wild dogs and the feral dogs are fierce. Packs of dogs that have escaped and are no longer house pets. They join together in packs, and they are vicious and frightening. Well, they were there under the tree because it's too hot to run. Next to who? The deer that they feed on. The deer were under the tree. There were snakes and frogs, which are natural enemies. They all made peace while the sun was high under this big tree. It was the only tree. And I'm going, man, how come people can't figure this out? How come we're like, we have mortal enemies based on caste difference, you know, based on economics, poor people and rich people? Ridiculous. Here are the animals making peace. They're, quote, you know, red of tooth and bloody fangs and claws. Not. They can work it out to survive when they have to. People can learn from that. So I thought, man, the family tree. We need a family tree. Water and earth, wind and fire, roots digging deeper and branches reaching higher. North and south and east and west, all beings are kin to me. We're all sitting in the shade of the family tree. Can you join me? We're all sitting in the shade of the family tree. Once again, we're all sitting in the shade of the family tree. Okay, you come in at the end of every verse. I got earth in my feet. I got oceans in my knees. Seven generations live on inside of me. My roots connect the universe. All beings are family. Here we go, your turn. We're all sitting in the shade of family tree. Do it again. We're all sitting in the shade of the family tree. to our planet we do to our home planet earth is our address nobody lives alone everyone's a neighbor in our earth community join me we're all sitting in the shade of the family tree sitting in the shade of the family tree is home to all of us share the crops don't make a fuss share the food grown in the ground there's enough to go around as long as it's not monsanto roundup ready genetically modified organism but how much is that very little these days eat the burger feed the cat one you savor one you pet pet the burger eat the cat uh, can't get that straight I got brothers wearing fur, I got sisters wearing fins. 
Some with wings and some with tails and some with rainbow skin. I don't eat my family. Come sit right here by me. Here we go. We're all sitting in the shade of the family tree again. Sitting in the shade of the family tree. Now, the cook, she calls it omelet, but the chicken called it egg. You may call it drumstick, but the chicken called it egg. Every mother loves her children. Live and let life be. Here we go. We can sit beneath the shade of the family tree. Come on, sit beneath the shade of the family tree. We're all sitting in the shade of the family tree. All right. So, if only, huh? All right. Uh, or as they say these days, as if. Wouldn't it be good?